So good evening. Um, on a day like this, when uh, the Columbus Day Parade passed a uh, block away from me, I think it's worth just saying the uh, Potawatomi people were the original people in this place. And uh, it was a wonderful parade. And uh, I also just want to say Potawatomi over and over again, but I'll say or twice, maybe before I close. Um, so thanks for sitting with me in our sangha tonight. It's good to be with people I've gotten to know uh, well. And it's also feel, it also has felt uh, great in the last couple months to sit with people I've never met before. It's, it's been wonderful to see people coming in and sitting with us for a night and um, we may not see them again or coming back again and again. Um, and I, I've been thinking a lot about what, why I keep coming back, uh, why I've been coming back uh, month after month. Um, and I want to just say what may sound ridiculously basic to people in the room and joining by Zoom. Um, which is that I sit at home pretty regularly in silence there, of course, except for the company of my own racing, irrepressible, uh, and loud thoughts. Um, monkey mind, some call it, but I think that's really an insult uh, to the fine reasoning capacity of our primate. <laughs> anyway, I'm alone in those meditations, that's the point. And clearing as much space as I can uh, by myself uh, to try to get a glimpse, get a grasp on Buddha nature, move to Buddha's rhythm, and puzzle out how to see things as they are and to work with the material at hand, as most talks in the past few months have encouraged us to do. And then there's this weird thing we do, which is that I travel across town in order to sit with other people in silence. <laughs> and that's the, this is the only place I do this. It's completely upended in terms of every other association I have with being with people, the expectation of a certain kind of performative quality uh, and feeling every silence instead of leaving a half an hour of it. Um, so, um, that's why what we do seems so radical to me, and it, and it is one of the things that uh, brings me back because it does upend that pattern of, you know, being with my new partner and his friends, being in a classroom, being at a, a fundraiser last night in Hyde Park, Hyde Park for Women's Rights. Um, the, uh, the convention goes exactly in the other way, in the other direction. Uh, we come here, we turn our backs on each other and towards the wall and, uh, and, and look for that glimpse and that grasp of Buddha nature uh, in silence. Um, so I have to say, I sometimes laugh at myself when I think about, uh, yeah, I'm gonna take the train and I'm going to go and sit in silence with people I know. 
Um, and the talk will come afterwards because the, the talk is second. Um, and that we clear that space to honor the possibility that each person who joins us and we ourselves can in his, her, their own way connect with a deeper feeling about what it means to be in this body at this moment in this place with the gathering of the other misfits who gather with us. Um, and then sometimes we get to carry that taste of that feeling, a glimpse or a grasping of that feeling with us into the daily reality in the rest of the week. And that's what I'd like to talk with people about uh, tonight because that's where the rub usually comes for me. Um, uh, so while it's so radically different from the religious tradition I was raised in and so distinct from anything else I do with other human beings, um, I thought I'd just start there. Um, maybe I could have edited those uh, beginning thoughts and just begin instead with one word, wow. Wow. And maybe I could ask you just to say it with me on the count of three. One, two, wow. That sounded pretty good to me. So one other aspect of our practice that I want to mention is that over the last six months, it seems to me there's been a shift in the kind of conversation we have uh, together. Um, this tone and style of talks given after we sit has changed a, a bit, I think. When I think back to the talk that Anush gave, that Tim gave, that um, Nick and others gave in Miyoshi uh, last week, we've moved bit by bit from a, a conventional style of, of talks in which somebody talks for 20 minutes and then other people kind of ask questions or engage with that. We moved to a more conversational style that it seems to me, well, I know that I'm more comfortable and more comforted by it because it feels a little bit more like the extension of breathing in the same room with other people and then engaging in a conversation about some question. It seems to me that we've moved from expecting the talker to uh, offer a series of thoughts or theories and instead people have um, kind of set up the conversation with a question. What is the question? So the one, uh, here's the one that's been on my mind with a confession that I sometimes feel really stumped by it. And what's, it's what I mentioned um, before. Why did we practice Zen when we already have Buddha nature. It's, that's a question that kicks off a group of Dharma talks uh, collected in, uh, by Suzuki Roshi, collected in a book called It's Not Always So. And I find it challenging on two levels. Why do we practice Zen when we already have Buddha nature? Two levels. Level number one, what? I have Buddha nature? Um, I wish. That's, that, that's a kind of level and layer of resistance. 
to, to that statement. Secondly, if I already have it, where's the promise of enlightenment? And in the religious uh, tradition I was raised in, that was the entire motive force of why you would keep going back, why you would engage in the traditions and the rest. It's a promise of salvation. Somewhere high, uh, there's an old wobbly song that called it High in the Sky When I Die. Um, and um, what's the importance of having a way-seeking mind if I already have everything I need for the journey? In that uh, same talk, Suzuki Roshi refers to the koan in the Book of Serenity about a man who reaches what he thinks is the top of a hundred foot pole. And he celebrates from the sense of, um, of enlightenment uh, and self-satisfaction and a sense of being above everybody else, right? But later in the talk, Suzuki Roshi points out that there is no such thing as the top of the pole. The pole itself is continuous, and maybe the person jumping off from that 100-foot height is actually the enlightenment. And besides, maybe the idea of a pole, he suggests, isn't very useful after all. Maybe a 100-foot view is not better than 50 feet, or not better than being on the ground which reminded me of what Miyoshi suggested last week, that we should, uh, I think he said, treasure, uh, uh, should not treasure belittle, but far away or close by. Um, in that talk, he also mentioned Zazen as a practice that allows us to loosen our grip on karmic situations if I got it right, and to soften our reactiveness and loosen the grip of our daily attachments. So I find those kinds of reminders intensely reassuring while I'm sitting here. And when I'm sitting at home and reflecting on our practice, but I also uh, find it difficult to carry them fully in the rest of my life, especially at work uh, and living up to family obligations and in navigating a new romantic relationship. So I, I suggested a few things that worked, um, that worked for me uh, when I opened and I began speaking. Um, but I wanted to see if this idea resonates with people in the room. Um, uh, There's a, a tension, a creative tension mostly, in when I move from the cushion um, and a session here to nearly everywhere else um, that I operate and work in, certainly at the university where I work. And I wonder if you all have some thoughts, both for me and others in the room, about carrying the experience of being on the cushion here out of the room and into the rest of our lives. I wonder if we